This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Friday. MFM is coming to an end. How are you, Daphna? I'm glad. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm jealous of the people taking the test this year that they don't have so much MFM on the test because I, I just felt like, anyway. Yeah. And I mean, we don't know, but the hope is, like you said, that it's it's more more focused on the fetus when, we, when we're going to get some of these. Yeah. More like numbers. NRP questions? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. More of a sensation. <laughs> Um, okay, Daphna, you're, you're up first today. Question 55. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. A fetal ultrasound is performed at 23 weeks gestation to evaluate an acute increase in maternal weight gain. The radiographic findings demonstrate fetal ascites, a thickened placenta, a cystic hygroma, and pleural effusions. The most common inherited cause of this fetal condition is A, aneuploidy, B, genetic syndrome of an unknown defect, C, inborn error of metabolism, D, single gene defect, E, skeletal dysplasia. Okay, so we're really looking for like what are some of the causes of fetal high drops. Um, And this is kind of nonspecific, um, but I guess they want to know like what's the most common cause what's the most common inherited cause which which is a it's aneuploidy yeah that is that is correct so um so the the findings of described in the in the vignette of fetal ascites thickened placenta cystic hygroma pleural effusion are um they, ha- they are consistent with high drops um the use of uh Rho D immunoglobulin has resulted in a decline of isoimmune fetal high drops and an increase in the predominance of non-immune fetal high drops, right? Because you could have immune versus non-immune high drops. So in the case of non-immune high drops, uh, it occurs in one in 1,500 to 4,000 deliveries. And the definition of high drops is that you have fluid accumulation and fluid accumulation where in at least two fetal compartments. That could be the chest, that could be the abdomen, that could be uh, in the pericardium. Um, And in the case of non-immune high drops, that means that these fluid accumulations happen without maternal circulating antibodies against red blood cell antigen, obviously, because if maternal antibodies are there, then you're dealing with an isoimmune situation. Now, the thing that I think um, are, so fetal ascites, pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, cystic hygromas, but the ones that I really remember are the skin thickening and the thickening of the and the thickened placenta. Uh, if if you're confused about ascites or anything like the skin thickening and thickened placenta should really be buzzwords also for um, for high drops. Um, the the fluid accumulation is related to fetal disorders with congestive heart failure, obstructed lymphatic flow, decreased plasma oncotic pressure, with increased capillary permeability. 
really, the prognosis of non-immune high drops depends on what's causing it. Inherited disorders associated with non-immune high drops include chromosomal anomalies, inborn error of metabolism, genetic disorders, and gene, def gene defects and skeletal dysplasias. The most common inherited cause of non-immune high drops is aneuploidy, and it's responsible for approximately 16% of non-immune high drops cases. Um, Turner syndrome and trisomy 21 are the most common aneuploidy causes um, and other trisomies like trisomy 18, 13, 15, and 16 all have been associated with uh, non-immune high drops. Is there anything else? The perinatal mortality, as we said, it's variable, but it ranges between 40 to 90%. Um, so yeah, I think... Yeah, I guess the only way maybe this question could have gone differently is like what, so what is the most common cause of non-immune fetal hydrops? So the most common cause of non-immune fetal hydrops is cardiac. But this question said, what is the most common inherited cause of mm -hmm. non-immune fetal hydrops? So genetics account um, for um, like 16 to 20% of non-immune fetal hydrops versus cardiac, which is about 25% of all cases of non-immune fetal hydrops. Um, and are again, you saying this because, because the, the hydrops is, is precipitated by um, the inability, like by this congestive heart failure? Right. And okay. But it's not right. like it's a congenital cardiac anomaly that's leading to high drops it could yeah, be yeah like... so the most common for cardiac is congenital heart disease which mm. again some of those can be inherited mm. but a cardiac mass cardiomyopathy arrhythmia like svt or heart block um and then problems that are specifically associated with increased preload or right ventricular obstruction leading to greater stress on the right ventricle that's interesting. And that's the most likely cause. Yeah, 25% of non-immune fetal hydrops is cardiac. Um, genetic cases are about 16%, but the most common cause of the genetic cases are aneuploidy. And like you said, Turner syndrome and trisomy 21 are at the top of the list. Yeah. And it's interesting because because the heart failure is at the is at the at the center of high drops, I, I tended to think of it as a consequence of some other form of mm. uh, inherited disorder, but you, you, I, I tended to omit the possibility that uh, an inherited cardiac defect could itself be the initial cause of high drops. So thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Question 56, you were asking about the BPP, here it is. So yeah. all of the following are part of the biophysical profile, except except A, amniotic fluid volume, B, breathing, C, fetal body movement, D, fetal tone, E, umbilical artery Doppler flow. Okay, so um, I think the BPP is tricky. Um, to me, the reason the BPP is tricky is because breathing is a factor when it's like breathing mm. what exactly? I think that's mm. the one thing that could be confusing. But um, yeah, so uh, remember that uh, umbilical artery Doppler flow is something that you can use to uh, measure the well-being of the child, but it's not part of the BPP. So yeah, that was my answer. Um, that's right. So E is incorrect. The umbilical artery Doppler flow is not part of the BPP. So the BPP um, can or cannot include the non-stress test. And if you include the non-stress test, then you get up to 10 points. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so a lot of BPPs are read as like eight out of eight. So eight out of eight is not including the non-stress test. If you include the non-stress test, you can get up to 10 points. So we talked a little bit about the non-stress test that you need two accelerations, A cells. So that's an increase in 15 beats per minute lasting more than 15 seconds. So 15 over 15 within a 20 minute um, uh, period of observation. If you're just using the eight out of eight criteria, then you're looking for fetal body movements. So that is, you're looking for three fetal movements within this 30 minute observation. That's one criteria. The second is breathing. So you're looking for 30 seconds of continuous breathing during a 30 minute period of observation. The third is fetal tone. The fetus must demonstrate at least one extension flexion cycle of a limb uh, with rapid return to the flex position during a 30-minute observation period. So fetal tone and a flexion extension um, cycle is separate from fetal body movement. And then the last criteria is the amniotic fluid volume. So they should have the presence or absence, I mean, they should have the presence of a single vertical pocket measuring more than two centimeters. So much like the APGAR score, each of these can get zero to two points. Mm -hmm. And then the BPP can help um, the obstetric team make decisions about like the expected fetal well-being and delivery. So in general, once you get down to a six or an eight with a low AFI, you would consider delivery depending on the gestational age. At four, you should get concerned enough that you would repeat it um, in the next 12 to 24 hours. And if still abnormal, there would be delivery. What do you mean but at if, four? At a, if you get a BPP of four. Mm. But if you get a BPP of four and you repeat it and it's better, then ba babies get get to stay in a little bit longer. If you get a BPP of zero or two, I mean, that's immediate delivery. So I'm not sure they're going to ask us that, but I think it's, it's useful to kind of know the parameters. Yeah, and it's interesting that the, the movements and the tone are assessed differently. I, I, mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm curious. I always remembered, I mean, that's not me just blabbering, but I remember that less than six you had to deliver. Isn't that the case? I don't know. They had a very nice thing here. Hmm. I mean, I'm just... The, uh, look, eight with a normal AFI, eight with a decreased AFI, six possible fetal asphyxia. Deliver if abnormal AFI... Well, there are lots of, there are too many things to remember here. But like less than four, you would repeat? That's the one thing that... It says four, probable fetal asphyxia, repeat same day. If repeat is less than six, deliver. Fine. That sounds so scary to do. <laughs> <laughs> I know, to wait it out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, Daphne. Question 60. A pregnant woman with prolonged oligohydramnios presents in spontaneous labor at 40 weeks gestation. After birth, the male infant is noted to have respiratory distress, abdominal distension. A chest radiograph reveals small lung fields and a bell-shaped chest. An abdominal radiograph demonstrates a whiteout with centralization of the bowel loops. What is the most likely cause of this neonate's clinical presentation? Choice A. Hepatic failure as a result of congenital CMV. Choice B, hydrops fetalis as a result of a cardiac arrhythmia. 
Choice C, intestinal obstruction and perforation. Choice D, lymphatic obstruction. Choice E, posterior urethral. Okay, so I, I'm going to be honest. I got a little lost in this question. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because it was getting to the end of my, my stamina. But so this, the main features, prolonged oligohydramnios. Um, so why does the why why does this fetus have oligohydramnios? Um, the things we know postnatally is that there's respiratory distress. Um, there's small lung fields and a bell-shaped chest. So we're really looking for something that will lead to um, the combination of oligohydramnios and um, pulmonary hypoplasia. Um, an abdominal radiograph shows centralization of the bowel loops um, and the baby has abdominal distension. So it's obvious that this baby has like ascites mm-hmm. and um, – that's where I got. That's where I got confused on the question. I was trying to decide: is this like a case of high drops? But they only gave us one compartment, not two. Um, so basically, that helped me eliminate, let's say, A and B, and kind of D. And then it 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 it. Um, while they put in that kind of red herring of abdominal distension, it's not because there's obstruction and perforation, but posterior urethral valves would certainly give you oligohydramnios leading to pulmonary hypoplasia. That is correct. Good job. I mean, E is the answer, posterior urethral valve. Um, the infant in the vignette has a prolonged history of oligohydramnios and um, the bell-shaped chest with small lung fields are basically synonymous with pulmonary hypoplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then once you start putting all these things together, where this is a baby with oligohydramnios, so the production of amniotic fluid is decreased, which leads to the pulmonary hypoplasia. Usually it means some some form of uh, issue producing urine, right? Um, and so posterior urethral valve would make sense. If the baby is not making any urine, there would be less amniotic fluid production, which would lead to the pulmonary hypoplasia. Now, when it comes to the ascites, um, that could just be because of um, accumulation of, of urine and just rupture of the bladder. So all these things make sense when you present it like you did with and and in the context of posterior urethral valve. Um, yeah, I hadn't th- I hadn't thought about ascites and posterior urethral valves, but mm-hmm. it makes sense. Right, so that's what they say in the answer key: the abdominal distension and abdominal radiographic findings are most consistent with neonatal ascites. The most likely etiology for this infant's ascites and history of oligohydramnios of the options listed is posterior urethral valve with ascites resulting from transudation through the bladder wall or rupture of the fetal bladder. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at the other answer choices, hepatic failure as a result of congenital infection, just as, such as CMV, is less likely to present with oligohydramnios and pulmonary hypoplasia. High drops as a result of cardiac arrhythmia would be more likely to present with polyhydramnios in the setting of congestive heart failure. Neonatal ascites can be associated with intestinal obstruction, with perforation, or by a lymphatic obstruction, but neither diagnosis would present with intrauterine oligohydramnios. So looking at the amniotic fluid, I think it's important to remember that um, it's a bit of a, of the, the production of ascites ramps up in the first 32 weeks of, um, of gestation, really is at its peak between uh, 32 to 39 weeks and remains constant and starts going down at uh, 39 weeks. In terms of um, an AFI, which is the amniotic fluid index, a normal AFI is between 8 to 18 centimeters. So oligohydramnios means that your AFI um, 
is less than five uh, centimeters. The incidence of oligohydramnios is usually between 0.5 and 10%. And the etiology includes urinary tract uh, abnormalities, placental insufficiencies, rupture of membrane, obviously. Um, and we talked about um, we talked about twin twin transfusion earlier, so I'm not going to get into that. And maternal medication like endomethacin. Um, the management of oligohydramnios usually involves fetal monitoring, making sure that the baby is not getting in trouble. Uh, you could do things uh, that are a bit less conventional, like amnioinfusion, fetal surgery. Maternal hydration obviously should help, and delivery if really the oligohydramnios is really severe. These babies are at risk of um, of passing meconium and having meconium aspiration, fetal distress, contracture. You can have lung hypoplasia, Potter syndrome, and eventually they eventually they often need C-section. The mortality rate is about 5%, but goes up to as high as 20% in the cases of severe oligohydramnios. Yeah. That sounds good. And you gave away most of the my points for this next question. Shoot. <laughs> so, question 65. Maybe maybe your answers will help will help us answer this question. Which of the following statements about oligohydramnios in pregnancy is false? A, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors administered to a pregnant person have been associated with fetal oligohydramnios. B, factors associated with placental insufficiency can lead to oligohydramnios. C, oligohydramnios is defined as an AFI less than 5. D, oligohydramnios occurs with several genetic syndromes, including trisomy 18 and Turner syndrome. E, urinary tract abnormalities in the fetus can lead to oligohydramnios. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, some of these points that I made helped answer the, mm-hmm. this question, but not completely, I think. Right. Uh, thankfully. <laughs> so choice E, urinary tract an, uh, an anomalies in the fetus can lead to oligo. We said that. So, so that's that's not false. Um, we also talked about the AFI, uh, the, amnio- the amniotic fluid index. So choice C that says that an oligo is defined by an AFI less than five. That is correct. So that's not the answer that they're looking for. Choice B, factors associated with placental insufficiency can lead to oligohydramnios. We've said that as well. But that's actually left me with the two choices I hesitated with. Mm-hmm. Choice A, um, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors administered to a pregnant uh, to a pregnant woman have been associated with fetal oligohydramnios. Uh, I didn't remember that, to be honest, you very well. But choice D says that oligo can occur with several genetic syndrome, including trisomy 18 and Turner. Um, and I think I remembered more vividly that this is actually associated with polyhydramnios. Um, so I picked choice D. Yeah, so D is is the correct answer because it's a false, it's a false statement, statement. right? You. So the, the correct statement is that polyhydramnios occurs with several genetic syndromes, including trisomy 18 and Turner syndrome. And polyhydramnios is also seen in um, trisomy 21, Beckwith, and also Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome. So those uh, would be reasons we see polyhydramnios. We also see polyhydramnios in... Um, uh, muscle disorders and anything that would impact uh, fetal swallowing. But the question is really about oligohydramnios, which like you said, is less than five centimeters. Um, polyhydramnios is actually defined as an AFI greater than 24 centimeters. Um, and then, so A um, was uh, talking about maternal medications. So specifically indomethacin, which we've talked about earlier, decreases the fetal um, GFR. So that could lead to um, 
oligohydramnios and angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors um, decrease the, uh, the fetal blood pressure just like they do in adults. Um, and so that decreases the renal perfusion. So it's also been shown um, to, to have oligohydramnios in the, in the fetus. And then the other thing that I wanted uh, to mention... Oh, about um, uh, placental insufficiency. So we, that's true. It does, um, lots of the disorders of placental insufficiency can lead to oligohydramnios. That could be severe preeclampsia, um, any cause of in utero hypoxia, um, evidence of intrauterine growth restriction, um, or even post-dates pregnancies um, can, can lead to oligohydramnios. That's it? That's it. And, and wow. we made it to the end of the week. We made it to the end of the week. Thank you. Thank you. I think you carried us this week. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Keep up the good work, everybody. Yeah. See you Sunday for Journal Club. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.